me share this poem with you. "'Twas the day after Christmas when all through the place there were arguments and depression. Even mom had a long face. The stockings hung empty and the house was a mess. The new clothes didn't fit and dad was under a lot of stress. The family was irritable and the children no one could please because the instructions for the swing set were written in Chinese. <laughs> the bells no longer jingled and no carolers came around. The sink was stacked with dishes and the Christmas tree was turning brown. The stores were full of people returning things that fizzled and failed and the shoppers were discouraged because everything they had bought was now on half price sale. Twas the day after Christmas, the spirit of joy had disappeared. The only hope on the horizon was 12 bowl games the first day of the new year. Well, this silly poem reminds us that Christmas can wear us out. Yes, Christmas can be a day of great joy, but it can also be a time of real struggle. We're usually busier than normal at Christmas, and so just the pace of life can, can wear us down in this time. Not only that, around Christmas, we're often a bit more emotional. We may reflect on the loss of a loved one or on dreams that never materialized or, or some other burden that weighs us down. What we all feel so deeply, whether at Christmas or at some other point in our lives, is the reality that things aren't right that things are, are broken. Life can feel so heavy. The days can be so trying. We, we, we feel that things are messed up. So the question that, that comes is this, is God at work in the midst of the craziness of life? Is he in control or is life meaninglessly chaotic? These thoughts come into our heart. We want to think about these questions together as we look in Luke chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the passage on page 909 in your pew Bible. This morning, we continue our series, Hope Lives. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to its own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In verse 1, we see that the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, had ordered a census. Now, Caesar ruled from 27 B.C. until 14 A.D. He required the census. Censuses were used by the government to assess tax, to, to uh, provide military service, things like that. This census was demanded. So to meet the demands of, of government, Joseph traveled from his home in Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now this journey, depending on the route that you took, would have been anywhere from 90 to 120 miles, about a three days journey. Now imagine being Joseph and how frustrating the timing of this census would be. 
your wife-to-be is about to have a baby, and yet you've got to make this journey. Do I take her with me? The, the trip will be hard on her. But what if I leave her behind and, and the baby's born or she has trouble? So you see that the stress that, that they faced, the timing of this was so frustrating. So Joseph returns to Bethlehem because he was from the line of David. Now, Bethlehem was the city where King David grew up. Now, this is really important because the prophet Micah told us that the Messiah, the one that the Jews had hoped for, would come from this small, insignificant little town, the city of Bethlehem. In fact, Micah 5.2 says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Now look in verses 6 and 7. When Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, they couldn't find a place to stay. Isn't it always one thing after another? Luke tells us there was no room available for them. Now, at this time, a hotel was, was one large room, and everybody would try to find a place to lie down. There was no room available. Joseph, uh, Joseph and Mary might have also tried to go to a a person's private residence, and the guest room there was full. From the text, we're not exactly sure what the situation was. What is clear is that there was nowhere to stay. She is near giving birth. They've made this long journey. She's exhausted. Joseph is exhausted. Not even a place to lay down. Think about that. And now, to add misery to misery, Mary begins to feel the pains of labor. Oh, no. The baby's going to be born. We're so far from home. We don't have the comforts of our own home. Here we are on this trip. The, the baby's coming. And so, in verse 7, we see that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, which, of course, implies that, that she had additional children later. Where was Jesus born? Well, this manger might have been in the open air. It might have been in an animal pen or a stable, a small cave. It might have even been in a part of a house that was designated for animals. We're not exactly sure. But the fact that room could not be found for the birth of Jesus was an ominous sign. For Jesus would grow up into a man and he would find that the Jewish people had no room for him then either. In fact, they would take him to a cross and he would be executed. Now, as we reflect on this short passage, it is clear that God is at work in the world for the good of his people. In his book, Mortal Lessons, physician Richard Seltzer describes his scene in a hospital room after he had performed surgery on a young woman's face. This is what he wrote. I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be that way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I'd cut this little nerve her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to be in a world all their own in the evening lamplight. 
isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man says with a smile, I like it, honey. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the divine. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Friends, do you see that is what God has done? Do you see that he came down from heaven to our brokenness? And no, he didn't twist his lips to kiss our palsy face, but he came into this world that is full of broken sin as one of us. He came to rescue. And so his life was broken on a cross for our redemption. Yes, God came down to accommodate us, to speak into our lives, to rescue us. He was broken on that cross, and so he rescues us in our brokenness and in our sin. Yes, God is at work for the good of his people. Never doubt that. The Lord Jesus who left heaven some 2,000 years ago and who was born as this baby boy. The Lord Jesus is proof of God's love and God's work in the lives of his people, his compassion. How should the truths that are in this passage shape our lives? Well, first, have confidence in God and in his word. Christianity is largely unique, as one author said it, and that its, claim, it cla its claims uh, to truth rely not on private mystical revelation to a prophet or teacher, that is revelations of a private nature that cannot be falsified or verified, but on public events which happened in the Middle East. With Christianity, we're not trying to rely then on private mystical revelations, say to the prophet Muhammad, or to the mysterious musings of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. No, the Christian faith is rooted in history. For this reason, we can have confidence in the truthfulness of the word of God. Was there a city called Bethlehem during this period of Israel's history? You can, you can study it, there was. Was Caesar Augustus emperor of Rome during this time? As a matter of fact, there was. In fact, he was the grandson of Julius Caesar's sister, Julia. You see, Christianity roots itself in real human history, not esoteric musings of a, of a single prophet. So Christianity's truth claims can be examined in history just as other historical events can be investigated. Again, this makes Christianity different from other religions. Also, Jesus having been born in Bethlehem is important because it fulfilled a prophecy about Jesus that was given over 700 years before. You see, Jesus fulfills this prophecy and dozens of other prophecies. And what does this tell us? God is at work in our world. We can have confidence in his word and in what he's told us. 
Next, find rest in the sovereign rule of God. As we just noted, the prophecies about the Messiah made it clear that he would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. But remember, Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. Isn't it incredible to think about this? God works through the decree of an emperor in a faraway city called Rome to position Mary right where he wants her to be in this seemingly insignificant small Jewish town at just the right time. Was all of this just a coincidence? Did all of these events happen by accident? Of course not. God was at work to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And friends, if you are his child, you can count on this. He's at work in your life too to accomplish his purposes. You're not out on your own. So find rest. Find peace in the sovereignty of God. Your life isn't out of control. God is at work in your life for his good. I mean, for your good, pardon me, and for his glory. Oh, this truth is an anchor, particularly in the dark and difficult days of life. So be at peace. God's in control. Next, embrace humility and simplicity. The king of kings wasn't laid in a beautiful crib in an elaborate nursery with matching decor. He was laid in a manger, an animal's feed trough. Now, husbands, maybe don't have this discussion with your wives when you're talking about nursery, you know. Honey, let's go back to Luke 2 and see what worked for Jesus. That could get you into trouble. But we do see something in this passage. There is something to simplicity. There is something to humility. How would God reconcile people to himself? Well, in the most unexpected way, the king of kings would come in these humble, meager settings. And we too should walk in humility and we should pursue simplicity, recognizing the things that really matter and the things that don't really matter that much at all. Far too often, we obsess in our life over things that are insignificant in light of eternity. Far too often, we are trying to exalt ourselves and be big stuff when what we need to be doing is humbling ourselves before God and pursuing the things that really matter. So embrace humility. Next, take hope in the reality that God identifies with you. Do you see that the birth of Jesus means that God has come down? He left heaven and he made his home here. Jesus is God the Son. And he endured life here on earth like you and me. He was born as a tiny baby. He had to have his diapers changed. He had to grow and experience all that that can mean. He grew tired. He got sick. He lost people he loved. He faced temptation and trials like we do. Do you see that the incarnation of Jesus, the reality that God the Son left heaven and came to earth, means that God understands. So in your struggles, remember that. You don't have a God who's a million miles away, who's in some other galaxy. You have a God who is right with you. In your struggles, right there with you. Oh, there's hope there. Take hope. Have you ever taken care of a little baby 
who got so upset and started screaming and crying and nothing you did could soothe that little one. You rocked the baby. You talked sweet to the baby. You, you, you gave a bottle to the baby. You burped the baby. You did everything you could think of to try to calm this baby, but nothing, nothing soothed the baby. But when that baby's mama came back, you placed that little one in mom's arms, and what happened? The crying stopped immediately. What changed? Well, the presence of mom, that's what changed. Brothers and sisters, do you see that God has made his presence here among us? If you belong to him, you're in his hands. That's how, that's how Jesus says it in John 10. You're not alone. Sometimes we feel alone, but if you belong to God, he will never, ever let go of you. You may imagine that as, as you cross some difficult roads, Satan may tempt you to say, where's God? He's left you. He doesn't care. How can you have faith and believe in the midst of these trials and challenges? But friend, do not go there. God left heaven. He is the God who is with us. What good news is that? So draw close to him. Find strength in him. Pursue him. And rest, rest in who he is and in his character. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I have great news for you. You can, you can know him personally. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, it means that when you die, death will not be the end. You will not spend eternity separated from God in a terrible place called hell. You will spend eternity with him in an incredible place called heaven where there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Why? Because God the Son left heaven. He grew up, became a man. He lived a perfect life. He was nailed to the cross. And on that cross, he took God's anger toward our sin upon himself. He was buried, and he came back to life, proving that he was who he said he was. And now when, when we turn from our sin and we believe in Jesus, the Bible says that God saves us and we can begin to recover God's design for our lives. If you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I plead with you, do not leave this place until you have called out to him and been saved. You, you aren't saved by, by coming to church or by being religious or being baptized or being a good person. None of those things can clear away our sin. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse our sin. How can you be saved today? Call out to Jesus in faith and say to him, I want to follow you. I want to know you. And the Bible tells us when you call out in faith, he'll take hold of you, you'll be in his hand, and he'll never, ever let you go, even when you fumble the ball. Let's pray.